This episode is brought to you by Dropbox. Start your free trial with this amazing service by clicking the Dropbox link at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Le Show, NPR, The Daily Show, Slate.com, The Colbert Report, The Young Turks, and The Onion Radio News. So it's time, ladies and gentlemen, for News of the War. The award-winning News of the War. I don't point that out often enough. But it's true. Soft, listen to the war. We can listen to the war. There's so much news of the war this week. That's why it's sort of up here at the front of the program. A massive pulse of carbon dioxide entered the world's atmosphere 55 million years ago in association with a significant rise in global temperature. But it seems to have gotten a lot hotter than it should have. University of Hawaii researchers who studied the ancient climate event say there are major puzzles about how the atmosphere responded to the input of carbon, puzzles that may be important in the Earth's current human-caused pulse of CO2. One issue is understanding feedback mechanisms. You can calculate how much warmer the atmosphere ought to get by adding carbon dioxide through to it, but back in the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum, those were the days 55 million years ago, the temperature got significantly warmer than the amount of new carbon dioxide justified. Something else must have come into play. During that period, the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum, the temperatures rose 5 to 9 degrees Celsius, there wasn't enough carbon dioxide to justify that much temperature rise, says Richard Zeeby. Richard Zeeby, not Richard Beebe, Richard Zeeby, the University of Hawaii oceanographer who led a team that looked into the question, published in the journal Nature Geosciences. They collected deep sea sediment cores that date back to that period. The implication for modern humans is whether if we keep dumping carbon dioxide into the air, some feedback mechanism will kick in, causing rapid climate warning, warming. The initial source of the Paleocene-Eocene carbon isn't entirely clear. It came from some natural carbon reservoir. The source remains an open issue, according to the paper. One possibility is that the warming caused the release of other greenhouse gases, which in turn prompted more warming. Clearly, things were different on the planet 55 million years ago, but the possibility of a big unexpected hike in temperatures is something we need to know about. This gap needs to be filled to confidently predict future climate change write the authors of the article. The findings of a major new study are consistent with gradual changes of current systems in the North Atlantic rather than a more sudden shutdown that could lead to rapid climate change in Europe and elsewhere, i.e. no tipping point. The research, based on the longest experiment of its type ever run on a general circulation model simulating the Earth's climate for 21,000 years back to the height of the Ice Age, shows that major changes to these important ocean current systems occur, but they may take, more, play, take place more slowly and gradually than had been suggested. These findings, published in Science, are consistent with other recent studies that are moving away from the theory of an abrupt tipping point that might cause dramatic atmospheric temperature and ocean changes in as little as 50 years. The phenomenon may happen, but probably not as a sudden threshold we're crossing, says Peter Clark, professor of geosciences at Oregon State. Is he a beaver or a duck? Mm, Doesn't say. Hundreds of images derived from classified data that could be used to better understand rapid loss and transformation of Arctic sea ice 
should be immediately released and disseminated to the scientific research community, says the National Research Council. Well, why isn't it? Because it's classified. These Arctic images show detailed melting and freezing processes and also provide information that's important for studying effects of climate change on sea ice and habitat data not available elsewhere. But right now, it's classified. The uh, National Research Council has uh, something else to say on another subject. We'll get to that in a moment. But finally, a news from the warm. Widely sought efforts to reduce fuels that increase catastrophic fires in Pacific Northwest forests, you know, fighting uh, forest fires, will be counterproductive to uh, the goal of sequestering carbon to help offset global warming, according to forestry researchers at Oregon State. Even if the biofuels were used in an optimal manner to produce electricity, there will still be a net loss of carbon sequestration in the forests for at least 100 years and probably much longer. Fuel reduction treatment should be foregone if forest ecosystems are to provide maximum amelioration of atmospheric CO2. So let it burn. Now there is one more. From the Times of London, the Great Barrier Reef will be so degraded by warming waters that it will be unrecognizable within 20 years. Well, I expect to be unrecognizable within 20 years. What's the... Oh, I see what you mean. This according to an eminent marine scientist, Charlie Vernon, former chief scientist of the Australian Institute of Marine Science, says there is no way out, no loopholes. The Great Barrier Reef will be over within 20 years or so. News of the war. Pardon me, everyone, and let me just expound for a moment on the virtues and benefits of a Best of the Left membership. First of all, it's the members that are helping to support this show and keeping it going strong twice a week. Without their support, the production schedule would absolutely have to be cut back. So you have those to thank who are willing to pay as little as $5 a month for the sheer volume of content that you're receiving in the podcast. On top of that, members also receive the Best of the Left raw feed. This feed contains all of the clips that end up in the show, as well as some that don't make the final cut, and those clips that originally come from television or some other video source are delivered in their original video format. To become a member, simply go to the website at bestoftheleft.com and click the membership tab. Thanks so much for your support. Today, the White House released a report that reminds us that global warming is already affecting our weather, and it's going to get worse. The report says cutting carbon dioxide emissions is a necessary step. Meantime, the National Academy of Sciences held a meeting this week to look at some of the more far-out ideas. Those ideas focus on whether we could safely cool the planet by engineering the climate. NPR's Richard Harris went to the meeting to find out more. It seems like science fiction, manipulating our atmosphere to counteract the effect of all the heat-trapping carbon dioxide that we're pumping into the air. That's certainly what Earth scientist Ken Caldera thought a decade ago when he first heard the subject raised in a talk by a nuclear weapons researcher. He basically said, we don't have to bother with emissions reduction. We can just uh, throw aerosols, little dust particles in the stratosphere, and that would cool the Earth. And I thought, oh, that'll never work. 
Caldera sat down to study this and was surprised to discover, yes, it would work, for the very same reasons that big volcanoes cool the Earth when they erupt. Fine particles in the stratosphere reflect sunlight back into space. And it would be cheap to do. Caldera is at Stanford and the Carnegie Institution. He says, over the past decade, talk about this idea has moved from cocktail parties to very sober meetings, like the one this week put on by the National Academy of Sciences. Frankly, I'm a little ambivalent about all this, that I've been pushing very hard for a research program, but it's a little scary to me as it becomes more of a reality to think that we might actually start learning how to toy with our environment or our whole climate system at a planetary scale. This raises so many questions, like when would you even consider trying it? Caldera argues we should have the technology at the ready in case there's a climate crisis, collapsing ice sheets, famine, something of that nature. At the Academy's meeting, Dan Schrag from Harvard University agreed with that up to a point. I think we should consider climate engineering um, only as an emergency response to clim a climate crisis. But I question whether we're already experiencing a climate crisis, whether in fact we're already crossed that threshold. The reality is carbon dioxide emissions globally are on a runaway pace, despite rhetoric promising to control them. David Keith from the University of Calgary suggested we should consider moving toward experiments that would test ideas on a global scale sooner rather than later. It's not clear that during some supposed climate emergency would be the right time to try this new and unexplored technique. Experiments could create disasters. During a coffee break, Alan Robach at Rutgers University cataloged a long list of risks. Particles in the stratosphere that block sunlight could also damage the ozone layer, which protects us from harsh ultraviolet light. Or that it would reduce precipitation in Asia, where it's a source for food for two billion people. Imagine if we triggered a drought and famine while trying to cool the planet. On the plus side, it's also possible that diffusing sunlight could end up boosting agriculture, he said. We need to evaluate all these different contrasting impacts to see whether it really would have an effect on food or not. Maybe it's a small effect, and we really don't know that yet. We need more research on that. Thought experiments to date have focused primarily on the risks of putting sulfur dust in the stratosphere. But there are lots of other geoengineering ideas, like making clouds brighter by spraying seawater particles into the air. Social scientist Suzanne Moser says even the simplest ideas aren't simple at all. I don't think that there is a quick and easy answer um, to employing even one of those quick and cheap and easy um, solutions. There's no mechanism in place to reach a global consensus about doing this, and a consensus seems unlikely in any event. Who gets to decide where to set the global thermostat? And will this simply become an excuse not to control our emissions to begin with? These were all questions without answers at the Academy's meeting. Thank <laughs> you.
Secretary of the United States Department of Energy. Please welcome the program, Secretary Stephen Chu. Great to be here. Before we start, yes. I have a quick little present for you. Thank you. I want to give you a T-shirt. It's an honorary member of the NAS. Now, normally the NAS means National Academy of Sciences. Thank you. But, however, I can't do that. Oh. Uh, but what since is, you paid attention to my confirmation hearing, I did there is another one. Nerds of America Society! <laughs> That's awesome! Thank you! Thank you very much! You know, I've, I've been an unofficial member for years. <laughs> now and I have uh, your Nobel Prize. Hold on for you. <laughs> You, you, you're the only secretary with a Nobel Prize, is that correct? Oh, no, that's not true. Who, which uh, other... Uh, Kissinger got a Nobel Prize. No, 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 I mean uh, uh, active secretary now sitting around the, the cabinet table. That is true. That is true. That is true. And, and how often does that come up? As, as much as I can make it. Yeah. Bring it up every now and again? Nice. Yeah, I like it. Um, now, are you, uh, as the Secretary of Energy, are you supporting this cap-and-trade uh, marquee Waxman bill uh, that just passed the House. Is that, are you liking it? Is it a good bill? Well, it's, in the overall concept, uh, definitely, I'm supporting it. We definitely need a climate and energy bill. And, and that sounded like you might not think this goes far enough. You think it goes too far. Are you upset with the carbon I'm emitting right now? What? what? <laughs> uh, uh, do, do you think they've watered it down too much? How, what's well, your... I mean, if you go to the left and you go to the right, people are unhappy with it. But the bottom line is it puts a cap on carbon emission. It says we're going to ratchet it down. And so that in alone, that signal that says we're going to ratchet down carbon, will send a signal to America, to industry, to entrepreneurs to say we're going to go find solutions. And it's a great opportunity because it projects the United States as saying this is our future, in a future world of higher oil prices in a future world where we will be a carbon-constrained economy, this is a great opportunity for the United States to say, why don't we lead in this new industrial now, revolution? How do, you, how do you deal with, there is a contingent now within the Congress, within the Senate, that believes global warming is a hoax. I'll give you that they have the myths. Mm -hmm. Carbon occurs naturally. It can't be bad. <laughs> it's in nature. That, that, that is true, but uh, on the other hand, you know, water uh, is generally very good. Water in great deluges is, is not good. You're saying that uh, water can, can, can be a flood. Well, Carbon right. in the same Carbon situation. Carbon dioxide, too much of it is, has been, it's inequivocally changing uh, our climate. Liquor on beer in the clear, beer on, oh, wait, that's a different thing. All right. <laughs> climate change is a hoax. I've got a petition signed by 30,000 scientists. Scientologists. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, scientists. That says so. It says the planet's not getting hotter, it's getting colder. Yes, I don't know where they're getting that data from. Uh, uh, the, the IPCC data the, uh, is uh, unequivocal. Uh, and the IPCC is, a, a, I'm assuming, a leftist organization of... <laughs> no. <All right. laughs> Myth number three. This is just a way for the electricity companies to make a lot of money cornering the... Big solar. I don't know. I threw that in there. Is, is, this, a, is this a way for, is, is this collusion? Is this an environmental industrial complex? 
uh, I don't think the environmentalists usually collude with industrialists. But in any case, uh, no, I mean, uh, the bulk of the scientists, the overwhelming majority, any serious scientist who's looked at this, virtually everyone that I know has, has gotten more alarmed in the last half dozen years. And, and also believe that it is man-made and not something that occurs uh, naturally. That's correct. That's correct. And I think that became compelling over the last 15 years. In 1990, the first international panel looked at this said, yes, the climate's changing, but there's no convincing evidence that it was caused by humans. By 2007, it said, yes, the climate's changing, and there's a, very, a high probability that it is, the predominant part of it has been caused by greenhouse gas emissions. As a noblest, as someone who is, is versed in science, been celebrated for their science, won awards for their science, uh, uh, how difficult is it for you now to transition to the legislative process where people who are elected officials with, with real power in this country stand on, on the floor of the Senate and the floor of the House and say things like, but if we curb emissions, we'll be taking away food from trees, which is what I think someone said uh, <laughs> on the floor of, of, of the Senate. Do you, you physically, let me ask you this as a scientist, can you physically, when you get angry, bust out of your clothes and get really big and then destroy them as the incredible secretary, too? <laughs> You mean where the big S appears? Yeah, where you turn speed. green and go, shoo, angry! <laughs> no, I think, I think, um... <laughs> By the way, if, if you do not, and I do want to jump in here, if you do not want to reveal your identity right now, <laughs> which I can understand as a, a superhero, you can feel free to, okay. to parry the question. I think I'll save it for phone booth, but but <laughs> but, but I, I think it's an opportunity as a scientist to try to explain to Americans, including our policymakers in Congress, uh, that this is a serious problem. But it's mostly also an opportunity for there's we will need a new industrial revolution uh, where we want the energy, but we want it uh, carbon free, and you know the American research and development and innovation machine is still the best in the world. And so if the United States decides, let's go for it, we can lead in this new industrial revolution. Well, now you've got uh, uh, the money to do that. But the other side of it is you have proposed some kind of simple solutions that I thought sounded, you know, you said paint all the roofs white and uh, paint uh, some of the roads white and uh, uh, little things like that that can save an awful lot of money. It seems like, well, we've got the money to do something like that. A lot of people are unemployed. Why not start just doing that? Or is there... Uh, uh, a blowback from that, like suddenly pilots are blind. Like what? Well, what, what I what I exactly said was was when you're thinking of putting on a new roof, make it white. It costs no more to make it white than make it black. Uh, when you're re-roofing, think of making it white. If you're in a warm climate, you can save an air conditioning anywhere from five to fifteen, twenty percent just on air conditioning bills. Number one. Number two. Uh, the air conditioning bills means less electricity generated, which means less carbon dioxide generated, and. The final thing was pointed out by a group of scientists at Lawrence Berkeley Lab and Art Rosenfeld, one of my local heroes, the energy commissioner right. in California. Rosenfeld, I love his energy stuff. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, he's top-notch weatherizing guy. Anyway, so... <laughs> Can I tell you something? Yes. You're, I think, the first cabinet member I've met from the Obama administration that seems alive. <laughs> You're the first one. The other one, they're literally just looking at me like. 
Uh, but, but, what but, is but, but he also pointed out that instead of absorbing the heat, the radiation, the sunlight, and just getting hot, it actually reflects the light back into space. There's no greenhouse gas effect. And it could have, if, if we start to transition to white roofs and light-colored pavements, it will have a profound effect on the climate. It's as if you, and he did a calculation, and it's as if you took all the one billion cars off the road for 11 years. Oh, my God. And that's, you know, it's a, it's a cheapie, right? It, it, that seems it, like, no, it seems like we should be doing that right now. I, I think so. so. And the so, set up solar panels in the desert. You be brother, we can do this. <laughs> <laughs> Secretary Stephen Chu, thank you so much for coming by. This podcast is supported by Dropbox. Dropbox is amazingly powerful and incredibly simple. It runs on your computer as an almost ordinary folder, but anything you put in that folder is synced automatically with the Dropbox servers. From there, you can easily share the files with anyone or keep multiple computers like work and home in sync all the time, all while enjoying a secure online backup of those files. I personally use Dropbox and find it to be indispensable, and now listeners of Best of the Left can get a 14-day free trial by following the Dropbox link at bestoftheleft.com. Today's story is called About Climate Change. Never mind. How one think tank adapted when the debate moved on from its favorite issue. And it's written by Lydia DePillis. It was a gathering of the anti-Washington elite. Last Thursday evening, in a vast hotel ballroom just steps from the Capitol, the Competitive Enterprise Institute celebrated 25 years of existence. The Cato Institute, Reason Magazine, and Americans for Prosperity all sent contingents. Master of Ceremonies Tucker Carlson cracked jokes about Al Sharpton and Al Gore. The crowd of 500 dined on sea bass and toasted liberty. But on its signature issue... Climate change, at the still young age of 25, CEI is already going senile. Fred L. Smith, once a bureaucrat with the Environmental Protection Agency, started the Institute in 1984, and it soon became one of the first conservative think tanks to go on the offensive on the environment. It attacked the Endangered Species Act and wilderness protection laws for trampling private property rights. By the mid-1990s, it was refocused on global warming, assembling the contrarian arguments that conservatives would deploy for the next decade. Myron Ebel, CEI's Director of Energy and Global Warming Policy, still heads the Cooler Heads Coalition, a clearinghouse for ammunition in the fight against global warming alarmists. Ebel and his ilk were basically successful in delaying action by 10 years, says Michael Mann, Director of the Earth System Science Center at Penn State. But more recently, the ground has shifted beneath CEI's feet. Starting in 2006 and continuing through a presidential race in which both candidates were light years away from CEI's position on global warming, the group's salvos frequently missed their mark. A major report from the U.N.'s Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change won over many doubters, while CEI itself, constantly criticized by environmental groups cautioning against climate skeptics, was put on the defensive against charges it peddled industry-funded junk science. 
Perhaps most important, the long-standing mainstream media practice of quoting climate skeptics to keep up an impression of balance, through which CEI got most of its mentions in the press, has gone out of style. One of the things that has collapsed is this approach that journalists felt they needed to take, with lots of scientific subjects, that every story must have two sides, says Marianne Lavelle, a longtime Washington-based business reporter, now with the Center for Public Integrity. CEI could always reliably give you that other side, especially on deadline, she says. The media also usually identified CEI's major underwriter, ExxonMobil, which contributed more than $2 million between 1998 and 2005. In 2006, however, the giant oil company yanked its funding from CEI and a number of other climate-skeptic groups, remaking itself with the green patina for lawmakers and the public. That was also the year that CEI put out an ad with the punchline, Carbon dioxide. They call it pollution. We call it life. CEI was becoming a parody of itself and a liability for Exxon, or a distraction, as a company executive put it. In some ways, the divorce may have been good for both parties. CEI was suffering as much from being disregarded as an industry front group as Exxon was from being associated with the skeptics. In truth, CEI's attack dogs are too ideological to be corporate shills and disdain corporations that abandon pure free market principles, as all corporations do. Besides, as Ebel says, CEI hasn't budged. We've never given up on the scientific debate, he says. That's what the public is really interested in. If the public thinks the science is a problem, then the debate changes dramatically. But with the climate bill on the floor, the debate is no longer about whether global warming is happening. It's about politics. Said an aide for Representative Jim Sensenbrenner of Wisconsin, the ranking Republican on the House Select Committee on Energy Independence and Global Warming, his main focus is not really to raise arguments over the science. It's focused exclusively on how this is going to hit people in their pocketbooks. Even some natural allies of CEI have abandoned its position. Jonathan Adler, who left CEI in 2000 for academia, has come out for a carbon tax, as long as some other tax gets cut to keep it revenue neutral. Douglas Holtz-Eakin, John McCain's policy guru on the campaign trail last fall, says CEI missed the boat on climate change. They're important. I admire their efforts through the years, but I don't think they're at the center anymore, he said. But while CEI may not have given up on the climate debate, it has taken up the debate on a lot of other topics. CEI scholars still produce papers, are still available for TV interviews, and still churn out op-ed columns on subjects like broadband regulation, ethanol subsidies, smoking bans, and genetically modified crops. In order, bad, 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 good. And CEI's fundraising is healthier than ever. In 2007, after Exxon cut off its funding, the group reported a near-record $3.54 million in revenue. Coca-Cola, Monsanto, Google, and Microsoft topped the list at last week's gala. In the keynote speech, BB&T Bank Chairman John Allison delivered a half-hour account of how the financial collapse was caused by excessive government regulation. Like CEI's position on climate change, the argument is one that runs counter to mainstream analysis. Unlike CEI's position on climate change, it's an argument that CEI's audience supports. Allison's speech brought the crowd to its feet.
question. When I was younger, I thought climate change was a lie. No more. I've gone through environmental puberty. And I am not the only one whose globes have descended. Jim? Yeah, is global warming an issue for the, for the world? Absolutely. I believe climate change is real. Scientists do show us that there are changes in climate. Turns out, scientists show us a lot of things when we don't censor their research. It's weird. Now, I believe in climate change for a very important reason. So I can market the new Colbert Rapport Green. It's just like regular Colbert Rapport, except we reduce emissions by jumping on the bandwagon. But folks, unfortunately, there is a terrible consequence of agreeing that the Earth is in peril. People expect you to do something about it. Which brings us to tonight's word. Ban du soleil. Nation, I'm never happy when Congress is in session. For one, it bumps my favorite C-SPAN show. I'm a C-SPAN host, get me out of here. Where 12 C-SPAN hosts are forced to endure working as C-SPAN hosts. For another, Congress sometimes make laws. And last Friday, the House passed a bill that will destroy our way of life as we know it under the flimsy excuse of saving life as we know it. It's called the American Clean Energy and Security Act, but on the House floor Friday, Minority Leader John Boehner had a better name for it. This pile of shit. <laughs> that is poetry. Now, folks, this, this climate change bill has terrible implications. This is not an energy bill. It is a tax bill. They're going to tax the air you breathe. The energy companies, they will pass that tax on to consumers. This national energy tax will force many businesses to outsource jobs overseas. This national energy tax is a job killer. This bill is a jobs killer. This bill is going to kill millions of jobs in America. Exactly. If this plan works, think of all the lifeguard jobs this will kill on the future beaches of Kansas. <laughs> the point is, preserving our planet should not entail sacrifice. I mean, we've been carrying on two wars for six years without having to give up so much as an iPhone app. Now brace yourself, brace yourself for what the annual cost of this bill would be for the average American household by 2020. The Congressional Budget Office said it was like $175. $175? Do you know what you could do with that kind of money? <laughs> Folks, they cannot ask us to make sacrifices that big. That's almost as outrageous as when they ask us to make sacrifices this small. Tonight's Meltdown is brought to you by your energy secretary, Stephen Chu. He used his address yesterday to discuss the need for everybody to, pay attention, paint their rooftops white in order to offset the effects of global warming. No, really. Ladies and gentlemen, you need to get out your paintbrushes and start painting. Offering a solution that doesn't involve the government and you could do in an afternoon? That Nobel laureate is an idiot. <laughs> now, clearly... Clearly, the most important step in saving a planet hurtling toward its doom is finding the elusive sweet spot for our response. Professor Boehner? It's clear we've had change in our climate. 
the question is, how much does man have to, to do with it? Exactly. If man has nothing to do with it, why should man sacrifice to, to fix it? I say, I say the perfect amount of sacrifice is someone else's. Well, brace yourself and ask yourself, what is the source of all our heat? That's right. Nation, it is time to put out the sun. It is a dangerous, unchecked nuclear power in our neighborhood. Oh, of course, I can hear the naysayers. Sure, Stephen, putting out the sun would solve the problem, but that's super hard, is it? The sun, the sun is just a big ball of fire, folks. You know what puts out fires? Fire extinguishers, okay? But what are they filled with? Carbon, carbon dioxide. That's right. We shouldn't be decreasing our production of CO2. We should be increasing it. So for every breath you take in, breathe out twice, like this. If we make enough CO2, it will waft into the sky and finally snuff out that homicidal son of a bitch. Do it for the kids. Do it for the planet. But mostly, do it so we don't have to stop doing anything we're doing now. start with uh, what your thoughts are on the bill that passed the House, the cap-and-trade bill uh, from Waxman and Markley. Uh, well, it's a, it's a valiant first uh, step. Um, we, we, you know, the, re the United States needs to join reality and join the rest of the world in, in dealing with greenhouse gases. And so this is a first step, but unfortunately it's, it's not a very strong one. There are a lot of flaws. Um, there are a lot of – there's a lot of corporate pork. Um, a lot of loopholes, and unfortunately, you know, President Obama, when he ran for president, he was saying the right things. He said, I want to have a 100% auction of greenhouse gas pollution permits. All the corporate polluters have to pay, and I want to give that money, most of that money, back to Americans. I just rebate it to them. And then in February, in his federal budget, he said the same thing. When he unveiled his budget, he said 100% auction of permits for greenhouse gases, and I'm going to give 85% of the money back to Americans in terms of tax rebates. And I'm going to take 15% of that money and invest it in clean energy. Unfortunately, after February, it went to Congress. The corporate lobbyists got a hold of it. And what passed was something very, very different than what President Obama first 
uh, called for. All right, you know, let's, Obama... let's, let's pause yeah, there for a second, Mike, because I think a lot of people might not be familiar with these terms. First, let's explain for everybody what the cap part of this is. What are we capping and how are we capping it? Well, the problem is we're emitting, you know, hundreds of millions of tons of, of greenhouse gases every year, principally carbon dioxide. This uh, odorless, invisible gas migrates to the atmosphere, stays up there for about a century, traps heat, and it's from the burning of oil, coal, and natural gas. Um, we need to stop that. We need to freeze it and then bring it down, sort of like the nuclear freeze movement in the, in the 80s. The idea was, oh, let's not... Let's not get too much into the details about how we're going to reduce and this missile versus that missile. Let's just freeze everything first, and once we've frozen them, uh, the weapons, then we can reduce them. Well, the cap, the idea is to pick a year in the future, in this case it's 2012, and then, you know, stop the increase in CO2 emissions in the United States and then bring that those emissions down. So cap it and then bring it down. Um, and you do that by requiring polluters to buy permits, and you only issue a certain number of permits equal to the amount of CO2 you want emitted that year. So you have, originally Obama said, we'll have an auction uh, to, to, you'll have to buy a permit to emit carbon dioxide if you burn coal for electricity or import so, oil from Saudi Arabia. So, hold on, Let, let's pause for a second there, because that's a good explanation. But when we talk about burning energy, who are we talking about here? Are we talking about the guys who take the oil out of the ground? Are we talking about the guys who use the oil for their factories? Are we talking about the consumers who use it in their cars? Well, it's a great question because there are different ways that you can cap greenhouse gases. Now, there's a great gentleman out there on the West Coast named Peter Barnes who was the founder of Working Assets Long Distance, a great entrepreneur, very concerned about climate change. Peter Barnes came up with this idea of cap and dividends. So it's similar to what Obama said, cap the greenhouse gases and then rebate the money, except that Peter Barnes said you want to upstream cap. In other words, if you try to cap every tailpipe, regulate every tailpipe, every smokestack, you know, every emission point in America, it gets really complicated. It's un almost undoable. But if you simply put a cap and regulate the point of first sale, okay, if you're offloading oil from Saudi Arabia, at that moment you need a permit. If you're bringing coal up from the ground and you're selling it to utilities, the moment you sell it to utilities, you need a permit. That would only regulate about a about three, uh, one to 3,000 entities in the country. Unfortunately, the Waxman-Markey bill is what's called a downstream cap. It really tries to regulate emissions coming out of smokestacks and tailpipes. It's very complicated, uh, and it's going to take a lot of, of regulatory um, resources. So we know roughly how much, uh, you know, what our levels right now are. And by 2012, we're going to try to freeze those levels and then say, God, it sounds so hard to figure out how we're going over the levels. Uh, you know, the whole thing seems really difficult to me. And then well, it how doesn't do have to be. I mean, that's the point. Look, carbon dioxide is an odorless, invisible gas, all right? When we exhale, we exhale carbon dioxide. So you're right. It's, it's, it's not easy to spot. It's not like it's colored purple and we can see it coming out of the ground or out of tailpipes. The point is you need a – Obama in February had a plan that was simple, fair, 
and built to last. It would be durable. It was simple in that all the polluters pay. You got to have a permit. It was fair in that he was going to rebate most of the money to Americans. And because of the first two, the third one was guaranteed durability. If it's a simple plan, if it's fair, then it's going to be built for the 50 years it takes to phase fossil fuels out of our system, out of our economy. Unfortunately, Congress on June 26th with the Waxman Markey bill passed a bill that's not simple. It's 1,400 pages long. It's complicated because the polluters got a hold of it. Coal said, no, give the money to us. And let, you know, let's grandfather this coal plant and give this money to these utilities, and let's have this compensation over here, and let's delay this and that. 1,400 pages of this stuff because the corporate polluters got a hold of it, watered it down, pumped it full of loopholes, so it's complex, unfair, and built to fall right. apart. What we need to do in the Senate is – Rejigger the system. Go back to Obama's original plan. And frankly, the president needs to get involved. I mean, part of the problem, you know, I'm optimistic about health care because the president is a health care activist. He's very, it's on the front page of every newspaper because that's what the president talks about every day. Now, he's not talking about climate every day. In fact, three hours before the big vote on June 26th, Three hours before the vote, when Congress, you know, Waxman wasn't even sure he had enough votes, they were whipping the halls of Congress, Obama sent an email out to his 13 million, uh, you know, email addresses that he collected during the presidential campaign. Three hours before the vote on the Waxman Markey bill, Obama sent out an email on health care. Said 13 million All right. people. Mike, Mike, let's, let's try to figure out, and we're talking to Mike Tidwell here, he's the director of Chesapeake Climate Action Network. Uh, let me try to visualize this let's say yeah. that uh, you know when you talk about capping uh, emissions let's say there's a hundred X of something right and we decided in 2012 that uh, we've got a hundred X of this thing and that's where we're gonna cap it and then by 2050 we're gonna try to bring it down to 80 X so bring it down uh -huh. a little bit right and right. then how would we what do we do with that hundred X do we sell it and then people have to buy it so if you're at a coal factory I don't know I'm making stuff up here or you're no, at a no, no, shoe no, no. factory do you have Look, to buy US, it yeah the, the US Department of Energy already keeps track of how much coal is combusted in this country how much gasoline is used we already know how much energy we're using that's not a mystery and it's a lot and the US Department of Energy already has what everybody agrees, even the climate skeptics and the, and the people who are fighting for climate policy, everybody agrees that we know how much energy we're talking about, okay? So we, we keep tabs of that stuff, all right? Right, but how um, do you buy it or how do you get permission to, to, put, you know, to put it in the air under this new system? Well, under this system, if you are a, let's say, a coal-fired electricity plant, okay? The, the government already knows how much coal you're burning because you have to report it because of, of other pollutants, mercury, nitrogen, and sulfur. So we, are, so we already keep track of that. So now, in order to burn a ton of coal, you're going to have to surrender a piece of paper that says, I have a permit to burn this, okay? So the government's only going to, only going to, uh, 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 under the Waxman Markey bill, give away most of it. Obama wanted to auction it so polluters pay. But anyway, they're going to be, you said 100x, uh, let's say, let's say 100x of, 
greenhouse gases, all right? So you're gonna you're gonna issue a hundred permits, one permit per X, all right? And if you don't have that permit, if you don't surrender it to the to the government at the beginning of the calendar year, then you can't burn that that amount of coal. So you have to either have been given a permit from the government, or in the case of a small number of these, gone to auction. So it, it's not as complicated as it sounds. It's doable. Everyone agrees it's doable. If you feel like you're just one travel mug away from total contentment, you need to check out the Best of the Left store. Between my cafe press and printfection stores, I've got all the t-shirts, travel mugs, and tote bags you could possibly want to show your Best of the Left pride. If it's a gift you're looking for, then go no farther than a podcast by mail subscription. It's a great way to introduce the show to someone who's not into the whole podcasting scene, but would love to hear it every week sent to them on a CD. Just go to the store tab at bestofleft.com. A meat shelf breaks free of Iowa. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Scientists are reporting that an enormous glacier-sized area of beef and pork product broke free of Iowa today and is expected to cause an alarming rise in global meat levels. Joe Hartwig of the Iowa Beef Center warns the drifting meat shelf could have devastating effects for the North American continent. Neighboring states simply aren't equipped to handle that much meat. Some scientists theorize the entire continent was once covered in a 40-foot layer of pork ribs but was slowly barbecued out of existence by early man. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News. Life, it's ever so strange, it's so full of change, think that you've worked it out then, bang, right out of the blue, something happens to you, to throw you All right, so now we understand the cap part. Let's get to the trade part. So we have these, you know, 100X that are out there, and if you have the permit, now you're saying they should have charged for the permit. That makes sense to me, but in fact, some of the uh, industry is going to get it for free because they got their lobbyists to uh, put it in the bill. Uh, what's the trade part? How does that work? Okay, so 85% of the permits under the Waxman Markey Bill are actually given away instead of auction. So if you pollute the sky, you get to do it for free. Now, if you decide that you don't want to burn coal, that you want to actually sell or trade, swap with someone else, your your carbon dioxide permit, then you're allowed to do that. And the problem is this bill allows anybody in America, any entity, any company, any individual who wants to get into the carbon trading business, green light. Go ahead. It, it, there, there's a lot of concern that there's not enough regulation. There's not enough. Uh, oversight over who's going to be selling what, um, and especially after what America saw on Wall Street and, you know, trading and derivatives and, you know, all these exotic, uh, all these exotic, uh, uh Wall Street, uh, instruments, there's a lot of concern that this is, this isn't going to turn out well. So, so again, 
you can have something this complex, unfair, and built to fall apart, or the Peter Barnes idea, the cap and dividend, upstream cap and no trading. You just you, you, you cap the CO2. If you want to pollute, you got to pay for it, and that money goes to U.S. Treasury. U.S. Treasury rebates it to every American, even dividend. And the concept is, you know, who owns the sky? Do corporations own it? Does the government own it? No, we all have a, a common share in this one and only life-giving climate. Therefore, everybody should be rebated if somebody wants to burn coal and pollute it. All right. Now, uh, I'm going to ask an absurd question, but there's a, a point behind it. Um, if uh, I say to the government, hey, you know what, I was going to intend on uh, burning a lot of coal um, under the Waxman-Markley bill, why don't you just give me uh, all the permits for this? And then I turn around and go, hey, Bob or Joe, you want to buy this stuff? Here, you, give me money for it. Why can't I do that? Well, you could. Now, the, the proponents of the Waxman-Markey bill say it doesn't matter if you sell the permits or you give them away. The point is you have a cap. There's only going to be a certain number of permits issued a year, and those are going to be equal to the amount of CO2 em, uh, emitted in 2012. And in 2013, it's going to be less. And so whether I give you a permit or you buy it, you still have to have a permit equal to uh, a ton of coal that you're burning. Now, if you choose not to burn the coal and you have that permit, that permit has value because somebody else might want to burn it or somebody want, might want to burn the Right, but it, under your plan, you would auction it, right? So I yeah. get that I, if I wanted to have that permit, I'd have to pay for it. So, well, then I'm not going to. But under the, this plan, there is no auction. So how do they get it? Uh, just, Why can't I get it? Why can't I get it for free? Well, you you aren't a you know a registered polluter of the sky, as far as I can tell. <laughs> uh, if you are, so if I was already a polluter, then I could uh, get this for free. But since yeah. I don't already pollute, no sad day for me. I can't get this really valuable thing for free. You can't get it for free. Now you could go into the trading business and you could buy. You could find out that Southern Company has some uh, greenhouse gas uh, permits that they choose to sell, and you could buy them and sit on them or trade them to someone else. You know, it, you, you could get into buying and trading of these permits. But, no, you can't get them. ExxonMobil is going to get them. You know, the refineries are going to get it. The utilities are going to get permits. Uh, uh, you know, they're, you know if, if the natural is gas there any policy the justification? Gas is going to get them. Is there any policy justification for giving it away free to ExxonMobil and all these other companies? Or is it just like, hey, you know what, we couldn't do it unless we paid off all these guys? Um, depends on who you ask. Um, look, as the bill, to get the bill out of committee, out of the Energy and Commerce Committee, lots of deals had to be cut. To get the bill out of the House, a lot more deals had to be cut. For example, for agriculture. You know, the, the U.S. agriculture uh, uh, community uh, demanded that, um, you know, the, the life cycle, the carbon life cycle of biofuels like corn ethanol, which is a boondoggle, it doesn't reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but by a tiny fraction once you count the whole life cycle of the corn that's grown, the petroleum-based fertilizer that's used, the land that's disturbed to grow it, etc. By the time you're done making corn ethanol, you know you could get as much greenhouse gas emission reduction just by properly inflating your tires. But the agriculture industry, once the bill got out of Energy and Commerce, demanded that it be amended on the floor so that all kinds of crazy agricultural things uh, were put into the bill. So 
Uh, Mike, like, you know, lots of deals were cut in order to get enough votes. Look, when you have the Republican Party completely unified to fight health care, completely unified in their in their uh, uh, opinion that global warming is not even happening, then you you know, it, admittedly, it makes it really hard for the Dems to get anything passed. And and Henry Waxman is is that you know he worked really hard, and he I believe that he did the best he could with the the blueprints that he decided to push, cap and trade. My now, had he pushed another framework, in my view, a cap and dividend, where he had gone to Americans and said, you know what, we're going to cut the polluters out of this, we're going to make them pay, and we're going to give you, the American public, the money back. Everybody gets one dividend. Everybody, you get up to $100 a month for you and every member of your family. It could be done. It's transparent. It's fair. It's ungameable. But instead, to get the votes that he thought he needed, he went with a right. cap-and-trade approach, right. and this here are is my, what we have. Here, we're out of time, so here are my conclusions. One, okay. uh, our Congress is, as usual, completely bought by the co corporations, and it's a joke. It's an absolute joke because, like, oh, we can't get the bill done unless we kiss ExxonMobil's ass and give them stuff for free. That's ridiculous. I mean, look at how absurd our system is. Conclusion number two, unfortunately, is I, I don't think they're going to get this thing done at all. I think that uh, the Republicans are going to kill this fairly easily because it's too hard uh, for the average person to understand. It does raise prices, which you could get back through a dividend, but they decided not to do your dividend strategy. And uh, and I just I don't see, see enough of a push for it. So it's uh, bad news on this front. That's well, in all fairness, just very quickly for the record, the Wackerman-Markey bill gives many of the permits for free to utilities, and the utilities promise to give it to ratepayers in various ways. But, <laughs> but not a, a single one. consumer group in America one. advocated for it. Not one consumer yeah. group asked for yeah, it. Yeah, that's a great way of doing things. Why don't we give it to the corporations? And they promise they'll kind of give it to us later, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll see how that one works out. <laughs> All right. Um, but look, Mike Tidwell, uh, Director of Chesapeake Climate Action Network, thank you so much for coming on. That was really interesting information. We're glad, uh, we're glad that you talked us through it. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me on the show. Gentlewoman from Minnesota is recognized for one minute. Hey, all Congress, climate change bill. Let's get our debate on. One, two, three. It is time to stand up and say, we get to choose. We get to choose. It's one of the two. Liberty or tyranny. Can we please choose something in between? Mediocrity. Just a these four words for what this legislation means. Jobs, 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 and jobs. Let's vote for jobs. And jobs. And jobs. Don't forget about jobs. Those in favor say aye. Those opposed, no. Go, 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 go. The fight that we have between the two sides now will down to one word. Freedom. 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 Freedom to allow the American people to live their lives. see how a bill becomes a horribly compromised law? Well, let me introduce you to a friend of mine, Cap'n-Trade. He's the energy bill that was introduced in the House back in May. Super strong! 
He's got one mission, to cut our carbon emissions by 20% by the year 2020. And by 20%, I mean 17%, which it was almost immediately dropped to. But he didn't need his cape anyway, right? <laughs> anyway, cap and trade is still going to make utilities get 25% of their energy from renewable resources by 2025. Or he was until that number was lowered to 15% by 2020, and states were given the option to make the number even lower if they wanted to. All right, well, he didn't need those muscles anyway. He's still cap and trade. He can still charge polluters for 100% of their carbon credits or get compromised into giving away 85% of those credits for free. Yeah. <laughs> then there were concessions that stripped the EPA of regulation authority over power plants, forestry, or agricultural firms. $50 million was added for a national hurricane center in Congressman Grayson's district in Florida. And another seemingly unrelated rider prevented the regulation of certain types of financial derivatives. All right. And perhaps the greatest insult to Captain Trade was when he realized the vast majority of these changes were introduced by Democrats to get centrist Democrats to vote for it. Sorry. I didn't realize the donkey's penis was up by his sternum. <laughs> In the end, the bill passed the House 219 to 212. And now Captain Trade, naked, bruised, and humiliated, is off to the Senate to get skull Thanks for listening, everybody. So since the topic today is global warming, I thought I would actually tell a personal story because it's relevant and it's not so often that I get to tell relevant stories. So here we go. Uh, many of you may be aware that I also have a relatively real job aside from doing this podcast, and I work at a nonprofit organization that focuses on global warming. We, uh, we do our work in the Maryland, D.C., and Virginia uh, areas, and the, the, and the focus on global warming also leads directly to work on mountaintop removal campaigns. So anyways, I, I just wanted to tell a little story about a video I saw pretty recently, and, you know, of course, the coal industry um, is opposed to global warming and, and carbon legislation because coal is terrible in terms of global warming and so the industry and the people who work for the industry are obviously up in arms about it and any efforts to stop uh, coal plants from being built meet huge amounts of resistance from these powerful companies and their employees because their livelihood depends on building coal plants and burning coal and digging it out of the ground and flattening mountains and all that sort of thing. And so this video I saw recently was, it was actually taken at a, you know, very peaceful uh, gathering that was all about, let's get together and hold hands and sing Kumbaya about uh, resisting mountaintop removal. This is our kind of people, you know, they... <laughs> They're, you know, just the sweetest people in the world. 
you know, very, you know, forward thinking, very simple lifestyles. They live up in the Appalachian, uh, Appalachian mountains. And, you know, this is their home that their families have lived forever. And, you know, their motivation is not so much the, the broader scheme of things and trying to, you know, save the world, um, for uh, for many of them, it's just about saving their way of life and saving the mountains that they've been living in for generations. And so they got together to just have a positive, uh, you know, kind of a private rally, really, just to kind of get together and, and talk about mountaintop removal and, and the need to hold strong together and, and fight the forces of coal looking to flatten the mountains. And so this video was shot at this event, and during the event, a bunch of coal company workers showed up. And the, the one most highlighted in the video was very large, uh, shirtless, clearly very drunk, and basically just being belligerent, <laughs> being very uh, insulting, trying to pick fights with the people who were there, flipping everyone off, flipping off the camera, uh, and so on. And, and you know, so he was kind of the, the main show, but he was joined by, you know, at least five, maybe five to ten of his co-workers, and they came to talk about, screw all of you guys who are trying to take our jobs away you know we work for the coal company and if we get shut down how are we going to support our families except they didn't say it in you know really clear terms like that but one thing he did say was you know this is this is how we make our lives you know you people may have other ways to live but we don't this is how we live and and it, you know it was really kind of gross video and <laughs> maybe the way I'm talking about it is is uh, foreshadowing that there should be any kind of sympathy for these people. They're really nasty people. And as I said, he was drunk, so he wasn't uh, on his best behavior. But I got to the end of that video, and I turned to my office mate, and I said, you know what, I changed my mind. I'm, I'm not so much in favor of finding jobs for these people in the wind industry when the wind industry takes over and puts the coal industry out of, out of work. <laughs> because, of course, in our campaigns, when we, when we fight for clean energy, part of what we're fighting for is, look, we're not looking... We'd be happy to put coal companies out of work, but we're not looking to put actual individuals out of their jobs. We'd love to have those individuals who would be adversely affected by new policies put into these new high-tech jobs building wind farms. I mean, the the people who were building uh, horse carriages, I, I would have loved to have seen them hired by Henry Ford to build the cars that put them out of business, you know? So, anyways, I jokingly said, you know what, never mind. <laughs> these people are uh, really horrid and offensive and they can lose their jobs for all I care. And, you know, of course I was joking, but I, I thought a little more deeply about it and realized, maybe realized vividly and consciously for the first time something that I had known all along, is that these people, they're, they're just scared. And they become horrible and offensive 
because and and frankly dangerous like in, in that sense of the word uh you know dangerous to the clean energy movement and dangerous to the world and possibly dangerous to the protesters who are trying to shut down coal plants because they're like a cornered animal in in the sense that we're all animals I, I'm, I'm not saying that uh, coal workers are any more animal-like than than me or anyone else but the way an animal gets uh, dangerous when cornered the fight or flight reaction kicks in and if they choose to fight whoever's nearby is in trouble and that's what happened in this video these people feel cornered their lives particularly i'm guessing aren't terribly good to begin with and they often probably feel like they're just getting by and they and in all likelihood a lot of their generations before them worked in the coal industry in, in this region of the country that's i mean that is a huge industry and there's not a whole lot else going on and they really feel like they wouldn't even know what else to do so when I think about it in those terms, I really just start to feel bad for them that they feel so cornered and endangered that they need to lash out to fight back to maintain their way of life when they don't have the sense at all that the people working to shut down coal plants would also be perfectly willing to fight to get them new jobs as well we would love to have that be part of our campaign and we would love to have them on our side saying shut down our plants and build wind farms and i want that job at, at the at the new wind farm that could sit on top of the mountain instead of blowing the mountain up to get the coal out from under it but it just it just doesn't work that way and they don't they don't see us as being compassionate as at all even when we see ourselves that way. And to a huge extent, I see the healthcare debate going the same direction. They, the, the arguments coming on the other side, as you will continue to hear, um, the, you know, this show is posted on, on Wednesday and, and coming up Saturday. There will be yet another show about healthcare because that's where all the news is right now. And I have, I have more clips on, on healthcare than I could possibly put in, into the show. Speaking of which, if you if you want to get all the clips on healthcare, uh, become a member and subscribe to the raw feed because they all go in there, uh, hoping that they'll make it to the to the real show. But but they don't all make the final cut. Um, but but the people in the healthcare debate are are, are convinced that the liberals in in favor of healthcare reform would advocate to set up as uh, Sarah, Palin, Sarah Palin called them, death panels who get to sit around and decide who lives and who dies based on their value to society. I mean, we're not having a rational debate in this country anymore, but the, the irrationality coming from the other side, I'm convinced, is entirely driven by fear. And it's, I mean, it, it really is, it's uh, artificially drummed up fear but it's fear nonetheless, and they feel cornered. I think, I mean, the only way to fight it is to continue to tell the truth, and, but really, uh, you know, you gotta fight it with the truth and 
like in your face compassion. I, I, w- I would go as far as to say that instead of trying to debate a person on whether or not we should have death panels, <laughs> which is ridiculous, whether it's the, the coal industry or, or the anti-healthcare reform industry, to talk to these people and say everything that you hope to avoid by blocking healthcare legislation we also want to avoid it. We don't want the quality of healthcare to go down. We don't want the price of healthcare to go up. We don't want there to be problems. That, that would be the jumping off point, I would say, for, for that kind of conversation. And, in, and then talking to the coal company, I would, the, the first thing I would say to a person is, we're not looking to put you out of a job. We're looking to put you in a new job and then take it from there. So those are my uh, thoughts on those issues. I I often have thoughts, but I usually just let the other professional hosts do my talking for me. Someone wrote in a comment about the show recently, and they said, you know, hey, why don't you as the host reflect on, on the show a, a little bit and, and uh, give your opinion? And I thought my answer to that post, I, I was, I was going to bring it up on the show anyways, and I thought my answer to that was going to be my perspective and, and my editorializing is the way I edit the show. I'm getting my opinion across to you by the way I edit, and so I don't have to talk because I let everyone do the talking for me. And then ironically, I just produced this show and it turns out I had something to say. So look at that. So this turned into a long show. I I talked for longer than I meant, but at least I didn't spend 10 or 15 minutes talking about promoting the show and whatnot. But now, of course, I do want to thank a couple of members. First, uh, Nicole T., member number eight, joined up on June 8th. And uh, jumping ahead, William E., member, member number 28, joined up on July 25th. Thanks to both of you so much for being a member. Memberships are going really well, and and I'm just honored that as many people want to be members as there are. D- don't get the idea, you know, we're not in triple digits or anything uh, close to that, but uh, just to put it in a little bit of perspective, uh, as, as you know, I basically run this show by myself, and any costs related to the show essentially come out of pocket and any income to the show goes essentially straight into pocket and right now the the recurring member fees there are no people willing to donate as little as five dollars a month that i'm essentially able to buy my groceries based on the income from the show and you know it doesn't sound like much but i mean that's a pretty pretty big uh, portion of anybody's budget and so the fact that I can do this show and do what I love and there are enough people who are willing to pay for it that I get to feed myself from it it's uh it's a pretty great feeling so if you're interested in becoming a member I will uh, appreciate it to the ends of the earth uh, and what you do is you just uh, go to the website bestoftheleft.com and click the membership tab. There's all the information about it there. And then once you sign up, I send you the information about the raw feed as your bonus feature 
for uh, for signing up. And now, of course, everything else uh, to stay connected with the show. You can join us on Twitter and Facebook, as well as by subscribing to uh, any one of our email alerts. Support the show by leaving us a review this month on August 20th. In that review, tell the iTunes people that we need to be listed on the homepage of the podcast store in iTunes. We're trying to get 100 five-star reviews in one day, so join us for that on August 20th. Continue to vote at Podcast Alley. We're in the top 10, but we need at least uh, you know, 70, 75 more votes to ensure that we stay there for the rest of the month. And while you're on the website checking this stuff out, go ahead and fill out our listener survey. That's where I got that comment about how I should spend a little bit of time reflecting on, on the uh, content of the show. If it's convenient for you, you can listen to the show on your smartphone without having to sync it to your computer by visiting stitcher.com and visit the show notes on our blog to find links to all the sources and all the music. You can link through and buy the music directly from our website. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend, thanks to the members from bestofleft.com. Thought I'd find some black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right